3: The big deal of the day, AbbVie agreeing to buy Allergan for $63 billion. AbbVie shares down 14.6%. Allergan shares surging 27%. Joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios, Max Neeson. As always, we love having you. Biotech, pharma, and healthcare columnist with Bloomberg Opinion. Is this a bad deal for AbbVie?
4: Uh, I I think so. I, I see why investors are reacting the way that they are. So the, the kind of motivation of this deal is that Abvi's biggest product, a Humira, it's a... a blockbusters for inflammatory disease like arthritis. It's already starting to face uh, biosimilar competition in Europe, and that's coming in America in 2023. So that's going to blow just a giant hole in, in its revenue. And, uh, you know, it, there, there's just not enough in its pipeline to deal with that. So this is a way of, of kind of getting some replacement for that. The question is whether this is actually going to help in the long term. You have Allergan with a, a lead product in Botox, uh, where where you know sales are likely to be pretty durable, but are starting to level off, and there's some competitive threats. So while you get kind of this big, you know, cost-cutting opportunity. And a big EPS boost up front. Uh, The question is what this does for the company in the long run.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I was just looking at the five-year chart for Allegan. It's not pretty. It's been a kind of a steady decline down from, you know, 300 and change down to where we were today. Um, So obviously the market pricing in, the slower growth, as you mentioned, for uh, the Botox business. Does this combined company, are they having any discussions about, gee, now we're bigger, we've got more resources, we can invest
4: more in R&D and try to drive our growth that way? Yeah so there's sort of contradictory messaging on this. On one hand, you know, in order for this deal to pay off, you're going to need to have big cost synergies. You're going to have to cut back on R&D. But then at the same time, you know, more cash is going to be flowing into R&D. So so the the net of that is is a little bit confusing and and you're not buying allergan for its r&d capability this is a company that really deliberately had a different model we go out and we look for the best science out there and then we we bring it in they aren't developing drugs on their own so kind of the fit and the added capability doesn't really come from that it just theoretically comes from having more cash to spend on everything apart from what they're you know they spent on the deal and they're going to be spending on surfacing their debt now
3: So let's zoom out a little bit because this deal comes at a sort of interesting time in the political cycle. President Trump coming out with an executive order this week talking about trying to uh, make medical pricing more transparent transparent and thus lowering it. I have to wonder whether a deal like this between two big pharmaceutical companies would be viewed pretty negatively by antitrust officials given where we are in the election cycle.
4: So I, I think that this one is, is actually going to be all right, even though, as we saw uh, just yesterday, Celgene is going to have to sell off uh, a drug in order to get its deal with... with the, or, sorry, Bristol Myers is selling a Celgene drug to get that deal to go through. This one, there's not a tremendous amount of overlap uh, in the things that the, the two companies work on in the areas that they focus on. On one hand, that, that kind of brings the strategic fit into question. It probably does give them an easier time uh with antitrust officials. And one of the reasons that this does sort of appeal at least a little bit is that Allergan is focused on medical aesthetics, on on you know, Botox for the face, cool sculpting. Those are things that are are often not really pressured uh, by by you know drug cost uh, scrutiny in the same way
3: I just I'm struggling to understand if this doesn't necessarily lead to higher costs and better negotiating power for these two big pharmaceutical companies other than just job efficiencies, in other words, job cuts, what are what's what's the value proposition here then?
4: So the this is pretty clearly a financially driven transaction. They just think that they can, um, you know, benefit from the cash flow and and you know by cutting eventually drive some kind of return and diversify away from from Humira. But the big question is, you know, by the time. That they're really going to need that diversification. How much is going to be there from from Allergan? It, you know, Botox has to keep delivering and stay durable, as do a number of other products. And uh, you know, there 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 has to be maybe something from the pipeline. And it's a pretty weak roster of drugs uh, for the future that they're getting here. I'm just not sure that you know the, the 16 or so billion in revenue that Allergan has now is, is going to be there when when AbbVie really needs it.
2: Yeah, I'm looking at Allergan's uh, stock right now. It's about you know 13 or 14% below the deal price, suggesting that I guess investors don't think, at least in the near term, anybody's going to come in and try to top the bid or anything like that. So it kind of goes to the issue of maybe not a lot of interest in this company. And I think, Max, as you stated, it kind of looks just, you know, there aren't a lot of synergies. So maybe this is, as you mentioned, just a diversification move on the, on the part of AbbVie. And if the question is, is it worth $63
4: billion to diversify your revenue stream? I mean, the the size of the revenue hole is just so enormous. Yep. From it's, it's unprecedented. You know, Ab- Humira did nearly twenty billion dollars in sales last year. It's the best selling drug in the world. Yep. Uh, replacing that takes a big deal. Uh, the question I think was was this the right one right. or the right use of that that big pile of capital? Yeah. Exactly. Max Neeson, thanks so much for joining us. Max is biotech,
2: pharma, and healthcare columnist for Bloomberg Opinion.
3: Facebook jolted the crypto asset world earlier this month saying that they were planning to unroll Libra. This was going to be a way to serve underbanked or non-banked customers and create some sort of alternative method of payment on its platform. The question is, how much is this a game changer for the cryptocurrency world? How much is this giving a boost to Bitcoin valuations? Here to answer all of those questions, I'm so pleased to say, Danny Masters joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios. Danny Masters is chairman of CoinShares Group, uh, which oversees about 850 million dollars in the platform and is based in london uh he also uh you may know him as the former global head of energy and trading at morgan guarantee trust now jp morgan danny thank you so much for being here so uh let's start there do people uh understand what libra is if they look at it as a cryptocurrency
5: I think cryptocurrency comes with a certain mystique around it, but I don't think uh, Libra and the Calibra wallet associated with it uh, really represents a cryptocurrency. I believe it is a representation of fiat value, primarily dollars, but probably also currencies, we're not quite sure yet, Uh, but transported on cryptocurrency rails.
2: What do you think Facebook's strategy is for getting into the crypto business? It kind of came out of nowhere. It's been an advertising platform, effectively.
5: Well, I think if you look at Facebook as a company, um, most of its revenue comes from U.S. advertising, but most of its active users live overseas. And Facebook hasn't come up to date with an effective way of monetizing those overseas users. So having what the French would describe as a shadow banking system with with Libra, not a, not a compliment, by the way, uh, is a way to start to monetize Uh, their overseas uh, users.
3: So you said uh, that it was another form of payment using the cryptocurrency rails. Mm. In other words, the infrastructure, the technology behind cryptocurrencies. Is this why Bitcoin has rallied, that basically Facebook would be paving the way for people to easily make payments using
1: Bitcoin?
5: Well, I think the the Bitcoin rally itself is rooted in uh, a perception of a weaker dollar environment, which is also the catalyst for gold currently. Uh, it has been rooted in some green shoots post the crypto winter, primarily in some coins which represent equity and some crypto businesses. The crypto, crypto winter, <laughs> coming to a theater winter. near you, don't yeah. don't. don't. <laughs> Sorry, carry on. Um, but, uh, but no, I think, um, I think as far as Bitcoin itself is concerned, I think our conclusion is that if Libra and its two and a half billion users can easily switch from fiat money into Bitcoin, it actually represents the biggest onboard ramp to Bitcoin that has has yet come into existence.
2: So give us a sense of what the regulatory environment has been historically over cryptocurrencies. I don't think it's much, but I may be mistaken, Mm. but my sense is if an entity like a Facebook gets involved, that could change things very quickly.
5: Yes, well, Bitcoin as a very new kind of asset has really stretched regulators in terms of their treatment and the regulatory perimeter, as it's called, uh, which by the way is usually a national perimeter, uh, is challenged by a global currency like Bitcoin. And the reaction from regulators around the world has been very mixed, some very positive, some very negative, some somewhat confused. Um, The Libra concept, uh, because it is so closely tied to the legacy banking system, is almost a combination of difficult crypto legislation and regulation with difficult banking regulation. So I think, and we have some experience in this, we, you know, ourselves um, produce some asset backed coins that rail on cryptocurrency infrastructure. Um, We've spent many years trying to solve that regulatory puzzle and Facebook have that ahead of them.
3: So uh, you also led the launch of the world's first regulated Bitcoin fund, I believe, in 2014. I'm wondering, as you look at this incredible rally that we've seen in Bitcoin just absolutely surging, I I have to wonder whether there still is value here or if this is just sort of a knee-jerk reaction to uh, the end of the crypto winter uh, that will be reversed.
5: Yeah, I think in the very short term here, uh, we have to recognize that it's been a spectacular rally, you know, off of a low, low, low level uh, uh, in terms of the historical range. Um, and going forward, I, you know, I think one has to keep in mind the scale of Bitcoin. And indeed, this is brought into light when you look at the scale of Facebook. There may be 150 million wallets for Bitcoin in existence in the world today there are two and a half billion Facebook users. It took Facebook 10 years to get from a million users to a billion users. And when you look at those numbers and that time scale, uh, I think you can clearly see there's a long runway ahead of Bitcoin.
3: I have to look at Bitcoin prices uh, have risen from more a little bit more than $4,000 April 1st to $11,363 today, Exactly,
2: it's an interesting chart. You put that chart up there for the last several years and that's a picture of volatility. Uh, So, Danny, I know that CoinShares is the largest crypto asset manager in Europe. So I wanna ask you, given your perspective, step back a little bit, just for our listeners to get a sense of how do you think crypto coins or cryptocurrencies will develop and what some of the applications might
5: be over the next several years? I think there's you know one of the one of the really fascinating things about Bitcoin is it can be viewed in so many different lights um, and and it is so international. Some people consider it to be a proxy for early state te- technology. Some people consider it to be a currency, some a commodity. and um, and that's what you know people can find reasons to to get you know to to have appeal uh, from Bitcoin in many, many different ways. Um, I think underlying that is the concept of some sort of a little bit of financial freedom. Uh, And this concept of peer-to-peer transactions of originally Bitcoin, now Libra, and potentially other assets in the future, and I think that's in response to you know a banking system which has and an asset transfer system which is actually quite dated now.
3: So, where are we, just uh, quickly, Danny, in the evolution of institutions adapting or adopting uh, cryptocurrencies?
5: Well, again, it's a slow, it's a slow development. Um, it was interesting to see Fidelity actually did get over the line here in the United States and uh, produce their institutional custody solution, which is slowly growing out. Um, Coinbase also here in the US are making a big push uh, on the institutional custody side as well, and so, you know, I think we can say that this whole. Episode with Bitcoin to date has happened in isolation of institutions, and institutions will not arrive until we can say with certainty your assets are not going to disappear or be hacked. That doesn't happen in any other institutional asset class, um, but that seems to be you know in the in the immediate future, and I think that's going to be a positive.
2: Danny Masters, thank you so much for
0: joining us.
2: Well, the U.S. consumer confidence fell in June to the lowest level since September 2017. The index came in at 121.5. That was lower than any of the estimates in the Bloomberg survey. Consensus was 131, so a big miss there. To help us dig into the numbers a little bit, we welcome back Lynn Franco. Lynn is Director of Economic Indicators at the Conference Board. She joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Lynn, thanks so much for joining us. Surprising miss here for the June period. What was driving it?
6: Uh, Well, I think uh, the number one concern was the trade and tariff uh, discussions that I think heated up quite a bit in early June, both with Mexico and China, seems to have rattled consumers' Uh, confidence both in ter- the present term and and the outlook. So it remains to be seen. I mean, a little bit of it dissipated in regards with Mexico. We have to see what happens at the G20 summit. Um, but hopefully, we can recoup some of this loss
3: next month and it doesn't derail spending. So at what point do we care about this? Because basically, consumer, more than two-thirds of the economy uh, in the United States has been the driver of the recovery. This is the area uh, that Michael McKee of Bloomberg News and Television and Radio has said this morning is what to watch to determine when the cycle will turn When is it concerning to you i think if we get you know sort of back-to-back uh
6: declines going forward now if we have another decline in july another decline in august um i'd be i think i'd take volatility as positive news that we can say well you know it was a few events that sort of rattled them for one particular month and we're back on track it's still a strong reading but if we continue on a downward trend then i would become a little bit concerned
2: so this index has historically been highly correlated with uh, payrolls and with employment, and still the picture is still generally good. There are there any cracks in the employment from from your data?
6: Well, we did see the number of consumers who said jobs are hard to get shot up, Um, and that's at its highest level now since, uh, you know, November of uh, 2017, and I think that could be related to the employment data that we saw in May, where there seemed to be, you know, we're not hiring, but we're not firing either, and there was a pause there. So I think we need to keep an eye on what happens in terms of jobs uh, in the months to come as well. And can you
3: just give us a sense of the read-through of the consumer confidence data with a potential increase or slowdown in the U.S.? economy. In other words, what's the lag effect here? Uh,
6: Well, generally, we we take a look at the expectations index. So that can have like a six-month lead. But again, we need to see sort of a persistent downturn. That then manifests itself in the present situation as well. So it's, it's interesting to, you know, take a look at the two components and see if they're moving in sync. And if they're both heading south, then we could begin to see a weakening in consumer confidence and spending and the economy as a whole.
2: One of the things that Lisa and I have been hearing more and more over the last several weeks, when we talk to economists and uh, fund managers, is that the potential and maybe even likelihood for some type of for a recession in maybe mid 2020. Is there anything in your data suggesting that that is reasonable expectation?
6: As of right now, we're not expecting a recession at least this year. Obviously, you know the probability could increase if we begin to face, you know encounter more tailwinds so to speak but for right now you know we're more a little bit concerned i think with the divergence between you know business confidence and consumer confidence and to see whether or not those two then sort of we can close the gap there because um, we've got uh, business leaders who are significantly less confident than consumers
3: i'm just wondering if there is something in particular that we can pinpoint as an issue that's the key one that consumers are watching to get resolved to feel uh, more confident again
6: Well, we did see a tremendous spike in the mentions of trade and tariff discussions this month. Um, You know, it's uh, maybe three, four, five times uh, the number of mentions that we've seen over the last month. So whatever happened in early June obviously resonated very negatively with consumers. Now, you know, things have dissipated a little bit. I think the situation is probably a little bit more favorable than it was at the beginning of the month. So we'll see if we get a bounce back in, in early July or not. Or if we continue sort of in this, you know, push and pull with trades and tariffs, it could have a lasting impact on confidence.
2: Yeah, I don't think that issue is likely going away. We'll see what happens in the G20 this weekend. But I mean, I think with, certainly with China, it seems like it might be, at best case, what we've been hearing from people is kick the can down the road a
4: little bit.
3: Yeah, but this to me is a fascinating point. And Lynn Franco, this is such a great day for you to be here because uh, the idea that the uncertainty around trade is bleeding into the real economy and consumers' willingness to spend, not just big corporations saying, oh, it's going to cost us more. This is a very interesting fact. It raises some serious questions if we don't get uh, some sort of resolution, How, regardless of the stock market and their response, the actual economic impact uh, could be significant. That to me is is a fascinating point, looking at the consumer confidence data. Lynn Franco, thank you so much for being with us. As geopolitical risk abounds in a number of corners around the world, uh, this being reported overnight by Bloomberg News that President Trump evidently mused to confidence about withdrawing from a longstanding defense treaty with Japan. This according to people who spoke with Bloomberg, uh, who didn't uh, want to be identified. Joining us now to discuss how Brands, Henry A. Kissinger, distinguished professor at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, also a Bloomberg opinion columnist joining us from. Baltimore, Maryland. Hal, thank you so much for being with us. So let's just start there with this concept of upending this defense treaty with Japan. What would this mean for the U.S. and its relationship with that nation?
7: It would mean a pretty significant alteration of U.S. relations, not just with Japan, but with the entire Asia Pacific in the sense that the U.S. alliance with Japan has been the cornerstone of America's strategic posture in that part of the world. Uh, for over 60 years at this point, uh, it's been the, the cornerstone of peace and security in a, an incredibly dynamic region. And so if the United States were to pull back, if it were to withdraw from that alliance, uh, it would fundamentally upend both geopolitical and geoeconomic arrangements in the region.
2: So, Professor, would you, if the, if the U.S. were to pull out of this longstanding arrangement, would it materially weaken the U.S. in that region of the world, in your opinion?
7: Certainly. Uh, You know, the United States derives an enormous amount of influence because it has security alliances with key countries throughout the region, Japan being the most important. And so if the United States were no longer so closely uh, allied to Japan or if it went so far as to terminate the alliance, there would be far less reason for Japanese leaders to listen to American leaders on a whole variety of issues.
3: So, I guess there's a question of how much President Trump was taking this seriously, how much this was just musing uh, on the heels of some report by President Trump. And we don't have the details on that point, but there is a question, how much can President Trump do unilaterally, both with this as well as some of his other threats with Iran? How much can he do without congressional
1: approval?
7: You would probably get differing opinions on that in the sense that I would imagine the president uh, would argue that he has the authority to withdraw unilaterally from uh, various treaties that the United States has signed. But I imagine the Congress would have a different uh, opinion. And so so there would be a a degree of of conflict within the U.S. system over that question. But but pivoting to the, the point you raised about whether the president is serious, I think there are a couple of things to keep in mind. One, this is a recurring theme with this president. He's openly or privately mused about withdrawing from a number of American alliances, including NATO and the U.S.-Japan alliance, since becoming president and even before. And I think that the general perception is that this is probably more blowing off steam than anything else. But these reports still have a concrete effect because they certainly can't do much for the self-confidence of U.S. allies in tense parts of the world.
2: So, Professor, one of the backbones of some of these discussions from President Trump about pulling out of some of these alliances is that uh, other countries don't um, shoulder their fair share economically. So uh, presumably here, as it relates to Japan, uh, it's uh, cost the U.S. a lot of money to have our uh, presence in Japan. Is that type of thinking, i.e. that we shoulder too much of the economic burden of patrolling the world, uh, is that shared widely within D.C.?
7: Within D.C., I think the answer is probably no for a variety of reasons. Uh, And one reason is that the costs of stationing American forces in Japan and other countries are often exaggerated because Japan, like South Korea, like Germany, provides significant amounts of what's called host nation support for American troops. In other words, the Japanese government defrays a significant portion of what it costs for the United States to station forces in Japan. The other thing that's worth remembering is that We don't uh, pledge to defend countries like Japan because we think it's in their interest to do so. We, We do that because we think it's in our interest to do so. We think that it will make for a more peaceful and stable Northeast Asia, and that in turn will benefit the United States geopolitically. And economically. Now, that said, there has been a degree of discomfort um, stretching back over a number of administrations about whether Japan is bearing as much of the burden as it ought to in terms of providing stability in that region and beyond. And I think that's a fair debate to have. But going a step further and thinking about withdrawing from the alliance would be going too far.
3: Meanwhile, President Trump tweeting this morning about Iran, saying that Iran only understands strength and power, uh, that Iran put out a, quote, very ignorant and insulting statement, and talking about how uh, overwhelming force, which would be his response uh, to any attack by Iran, will be met uh, with obliteration, potentially. I'm just wondering how seriously do people take this? I- I'm looking, again, we've been looking at the price of oil, it's not responding that much.
7: I think people are starting to perceive that there are contradictory tendencies in the president's policy toward Iran. So on the one hand, he's very serious about getting tough with Iran and trying to put additional pressure on the regime and forcing the regime to accept uh, some deal that would be more stringent than the one that the Obama administration negotiated. On the other hand, the president made quite clear last week that he really has no interest in taking on another military conflict, particularly in the Middle East. This has been a theme of his campaign rhetoric going back to 2015, and there's no reason to think that he has changed his mind. And so I think what what people may be doing is is assuming that while the president will talk tough, he will ultimately uh, decide not to pull the trigger on a major military operation vis-a-vis Iran, unless the United States is significantly provoked.
2: Hal Brands, thank you so much. Hal Brands is a Henry A. Kissinger Distinguished Professor Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. He's also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist sharing his views on uh, the uh, U.S.-Japan Defense Pact.